This fourth Sunday of Lent brings us once again to the book of John. Last week, we remembered the story of the Samaritan woman at the well from John 5. A foreigner, a woman, a marginalized member of society. And today we meet another marginalized character, a blind man from Jerusalem. John is the book of I am statements. And our text refers back to Jesus' claim in John 8 that he is the light of the world. I am the light of the world, Jesus said. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. For the Samaritan woman, Jesus was the living water. Today he is the light of the world. But before we open to the text, we will read our prayer for illumination together. This prayer prepares us to hear the word of the Lord. To be illumined is to make something clear, whether that means seeing something, something vividly for the first time or coming back to something we've already seen. The prayer, if you have it, is in your Lenten devotional on the page marked week five, but the words will also appear on the screen at this time. So would you join me in prayer? Almighty God, who in Jesus Christ has come to us as the light of the world. Illumine our paths and guide our way that we may not walk in darkness, but may follow the way of Jesus Christ and have the light of life. Amen. Because John 9 is 42 verses long and there is so much to glean from it, We'll only read the first seven verses together of the text, and we'll come back to the remaining six near the end of the sermon. Of course, we'll review some of that stuff in between and point out important details as we go, but we won't read the entirety of the text. So hear the word of the Lord from John 9, verses 1 through 7. As he, Jesus, went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means scent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In John 9, it's the season of festivals. In Jerusalem. While the other synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, focus on Jesus' ministry throughout Galilee, John's gospel centers on Jerusalem, the city that represents a clashing of cultures, a clashing of languages, a clashing of opinions about Jesus. Jerusalem was a high traffic area due to its geographical location. It became a haven for those passing through and a home to a diverse spectrum of people. Jerusalem changed a lot 
between the Old and the New Testaments. It grew north and it grew west. It was surrounded by walls, as were most important cities, with only a handful of entrances to protect its inhabitants. And it was certainly a well-populated city, anywhere between 600,000 to a million people, according to Josephus, the ancient historian. It attracted all sorts of people who were interested in business, religion, philosophy, war. And many characters in the Bible are from Jerusalem or live in Jerusalem, like the overlooked blind man. It's incredibly difficult to get accurate statistics on persons with disabilities. But I noticed as I browsed the National Federation of the Blinds website that the definition of blindness being held by the characters in our text is not included in this organization's definition. According to the National Federation of the Blind, blindness is the inability to see at all or at best to discern light from darkness. It can also be when sight is bad enough that even with corrective lenses, the individual must use alternative methods in an activity to engage in the same way someone with normal vision would do with their eyes. Immediately when they see a man born blind, the disciples make an assumption. Either this man sinned or his parents did. But according to the National Federation of the Blind, sinfulness doesn't have anything to do with blindness. And we need to take note of that, no matter how obvious this may seem. Great delicacy is required when approaching this text effectively because the world of the first century was not alerted to the physically handicapped in the same way ours is. Even so, our world and our church have a lot to learn about disability, hospitality, ministry, and the image of God. Texts like these in John 9, when interpreted incorrectly, can be used to argue that those who have physical disabilities are less or need to be made right. In fact, when I first read this text, I was a bit troubled by the language of Jesus using the blind man to get a point across in verse 3. It seemed to me that Jesus was taking advantage of the man born blind or using the blind man without his permission to display God's power. However, I am reminded yet again that Jesus looks to the marginalized, to persons with disability, to women, to children, to foreigners like the Samaritan woman to teach us about God's grace and love. It is incredibly meaningful to me that the man born blind mattered to Jesus, not only once he got better. Jesus trusted the blind man with the message of the Messiah while he was blind. The disciples assumed that the blindness was a symptom of sinfulness, and therefore two possibilities were plausible according to their mental model. Either the man, when he was a baby, was blind born blind as a punishment for the sins of the parents. This thinks back to the giving of the law, where God punishes up to four generations for sinfulness. So either this or the man when he was a baby had sinned within the womb, which comes from the story of Jacob and Esau, where the twins wrestle within the womb of Rebekah in Genesis 25. 
Later in this chapter, the parents of the man born blind are asked to confirm that this is in fact is this in fact is their son and that he was blind and is no longer blind. The parents respond with, "We know he is our son and we know he was born blind. He is of age. He will speak for himself." The blind man was of age. That means he was at least 13 years old. So not only is this blind man blind, but he could also be quite young, a teenager. This message that Jesus is the light of the world is entrusted to a blind person, to a young person, a doubly marginalized person. As you imagine the blind man from this text, imagine instead a blind teenager. Jesus asked the marginalized man to wash in the pool of Siloam which is near the southernmost point of Jerusalem. It overlooks the Garden of Gethsemane and the Mount of Olives to, got to think backwards, to the east, and the temple to the north. This was an old pool. It still exists today. But notice with me that it's a very open space. This wasn't a private miracle. It was a public one. The miracle itself in the text is incredibly brief, barely two verses, while the entirety of this 42-verse chapter is devoted to the impact of the miracle on the community. This leads me to believe that perhaps the text is not exclusively about the miracle. So as we move to this next piece of the story, remember the words of Jesus in verse 4. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. If you read the next slew of verses, you'll observe several different conversations. In verse 8, the blind man is confronted by his neighbors, both those who believe he was the man born blind who was made to see and others who don't think that could be possible. In verse 13, these same neighbors bring him before the Pharisees who want to know if Jesus is a sinner because he performed a healing on the Sabbath, which was illegal according to the law of the Old Testament. Verse 18, the third conversation, introduces the blind man's parents, which we already covered. They confirm the blind man's identity both as their son and as someone that they know to be blind. But the parents are afraid to claim that Jesus is the Messiah, as the text notes, because if they did, they would be thrown out of the synagogue. In verse 24, the fourth conversation, the Pharisees and Jews confront the blind man again. They do not believe that he was healed by Jesus. They argue in verses 28 and 29 that they are disciples of Moses, meaning that they are disciples of the law, and Jesus is not to be trusted. Finally, Jesus returns in verse 35 to have a conversation with the Jews and Pharisees, but we'll come back to that final fifth conversation. So I count five conversations about this one miracle three of which are with the man born blind. When he is confronted by neighbors, he says, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash, and I did, and I could see, but I don't know who he is. He's in disbelief in this first conversation, putting the pieces together. Before the Pharisees, he says, he put mud on my eyes and I washed, and now I see. Jesus is a prophet. He may not understand why Jesus chose him, but he knows what he experienced. 
Before the Pharisees a second time in the third and final conversation, he says with growing conviction, I don't know if Jesus is a sinner or not, but one thing I do know, I was blind and now I see. I told you this already and you did not listen. You don't know where he comes from, but he opened my eyes. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And as a result, the previously blind man is thrown out of the synagogue. There is something bigger going on here, bigger than blindness becoming sight. Blindness, as you likely have guessed, is more than a physical condition in this story. It is serving as a metaphor. Spiritual disillusionment, spiritual immaturity, spiritual lack of clarity, spiritual ignorance. This is not the only instance where blindness serves as a metaphor in Scripture. Jesus leans into this when he says, I am the light, the opposite of darkness. I am the light of the world. The man you see here, this blind man, disciples, is in a tangible darkness that you can understand, but with me there is no darkness. When we think about darkness, we often think of sin or hardship. We think of pain and suffering. But perhaps this is not the darkness of which Jesus is speaking. Let's turn again to the word of the Lord, this time from John 9, verses 35 to 41. Jesus heard that they, the Pharisees, had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were there with him heard him say this and asked, what? Are we blind too? Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Your guilt remains. Who is blind in this text? The Pharisees. But who can see the man born blind? Was the blind man a sinner? Yes. Were the Pharisees sinners? Yes. So what makes the Pharisees blind? Why are they in darkness? Psalm 23, a psalm that many of us know and love, speaks about dark, threatening valleys. The psalmist says, Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. In the darkness, the psalmist had the clarity to see God, to know that God was present, that God would lead to green pastures, that God would refresh souls with quiet waters, that God would guide on right paths. It's not necessarily that the psalmist was in a valley of sin, but rather that even when the circumstances of life did not illumine the reality of God's nearness, the psalmist believed that the light of the world shone nonetheless. The works of God could spring forth from the psalmist because the psalmist knew God and had the confidence to place faith in lighter places. The Pharisees at the end of our text remain in darkness, 
They do not see Jesus as the Messiah. They do not believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and therefore they cannot bring about the works of God. Even when the light shone directly through the person of Jesus and through the testimony of the man born blind, they still could not or did not or would not see it. I asked you earlier to hold on to verse 4. As long as it is day, Jesus says, we must do the works of him who sent me. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. When I first read that phrase, the works of him who sent me, I assumed that the works referred to the miracle, the miracle alone. Jesus did the work, performed the miracle of the one who sent him. And that's as far as I took it, which became confusing for me because the only clear application point then is to perform miracles, to perform miracles as the work of God. Miracles are the work of God, but so is sharing your story, your from darkness to light story. In the face of Pharisees and neighbors and frightened parents, would you dare to claim that you were once in darkness and brought to light, even if you could get thrown out of the synagogue, even when you don't know how to explain what happened to you, even if you've been through something as humbling as spit mud. The blind man, who if you noticed has no name, the blind man did the work of Jesus, the one who sent him literally to the pool called the scent. Three times he stubbornly insisted he was blind and then he could see. Even when many disbelieved him, even when he didn't have all the answers, when his Savior revealed himself, that is all the blind man needed. The work that God called him to was sharing his testimony. Like the blind man, you are called to do the work of sharing your story, but you are also called to hear the stories of the blind men in your life. My colleague and previous mentor, the Reverend Karsten Voskel, over at Second Reformed Church, is also preaching on this text today. And he too was drawn to the fact that this young, blind man represented a marginalized community, both when he was blind and when he could see. So Karsten asked the following application question that I think is too right on the money to go without sharing. I think, Karsten writes, that one of the most important questions we as the church must always ask involves those not sitting in our pews. Meaning this, who in our lives is more like this person within our text, both when he is blind and marginalized within society and when he is healed and marginalized within our own churches? Who isn't here today and why not? What are the barriers to such persons? What are their questions concerns and doubts? Why have they been neglected or excluded? What is their past pain? Why is it, Karsten says, that such persons have yet to experience our fuller attention and deeper commitment? I would invite you to allow the Spirit in this moment to reveal who you are in the story. Are you the blind man who is called to testify to the power of God in your life in a specific way? Or are you the Pharisee who is really struggling to accept the work of God in someone you don't understand, in someone you don't agree with, 
or you don't believe in? Where are you taking on the light shining work of God? Where are you choosing not to? The Lenten practice we are leaning into this week is scripture and action. We practice Lectio Divina and imaginative prayer. We read written reflections of different members of our congregation. But today we consider what it means to put scripture into action. To allow Sunday's text to shape our Monday to Saturday lives. And we do this because James 1.22 says, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. What does this word inspire you to do? Paul definitely knew Jesus as the light of the world. If you need a refresher, definitely read his conversion story from Acts 9, where he experiences Jesus as a literal blinding light. But hear Paul's scripture and action response from the book of Ephesians, chapter 5. For I, for you, were once in darkness, but now you are the light of the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is why it is said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Would you pray with me? Lord God, you are the light of the world, a commanding light that completely overtook Paul on the road to Damascus, a light that confused the Pharisees and changed the life of a nameless man born blind. You aren't a passive light. You are a light that calls for action, for grace, love, justice, and peace. As we own up to our own blindness, have mercy on us. As we learn to shine your light, be gracious to us. In your name we pray all these things. Amen.